Volume Three, Chapter Thirteen of Mr. Hogarth's Will. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Hogarth's Will by Catherine Helen Spence. Volume Three, Chapter Thirteen. Not so bad after all. Perhaps there never was a romantic communication made to five more prosaic-looking people than the accredited agents of the societies. Middle-aged and elderly men, who, if they ever took up a novel, skipped the love passages, and in all instances preferred to read newspapers. They were very much bewildered at the purpose of their being called together. They had thought there must have been a codicil found to the very strange will of which they had had a copy sent to their societies, as being, though in a very unlikely contingency, possibly interested, and that it was possible they were to receive a small sum in essa, instead of the large one in passe. But when Mr. Macfarlane produced no codicil, but read to them gravely Mrs. Peck's confession instead, and paused at the conclusion, as if he expected them to express an opinion, they looked at each other for a few seconds, unwilling to commit themselves by initiating any remark whatever. At last the boldest of the number observed that it was a strange story, which the others agreed to unanimously. "'Do you think it is true?' said Francis. "'Perhaps it is,' said the director of the blind asylum. "'There is no saying. Of course it does not at all invalidate Mr. Hogarth. My client's right to the estate, movable and heritable, of the late Hogarth of Cross Hall,' said Mr. Macfarlane, "'for you know that was left to him by will.' "'Of course not,' said the director of the blind asylum. "'One can see that.' "'But what was the use of calling us here,' said the representative of the deaf and dumb asylum, "'to tell us that Cross Hall left his property, perhaps by a mistake. "'Had he claimed, as heir of entail, or as heir at law, the case would have been different, "'but it would have been our business to have found that out, or the next heirs, "'and certainly not the present possessors. "'You will observe,' said Francis, "'that I hold the property under conditions. "'One is that I shall not marry either of my cousins.' If Jane Melville is not my cousin, marrying her and restoring her to the property, which she has a better right to than I have, should not invalidate my right by this will. "'Oh, that is a very different affair,' said the deaf and dumb delegate. "'You want to marry Miss Melville, and to keep the estate, too?' "'Yes, if I can, legally. I know that if Mr. Hogarth was alive at this day, and could see this confession, he would believe it, and he would no longer see any bar to my marriage with his niece.' If he could see how well and how bravely his nieces have battled with the world, he would require no further trial of their fortitude or patience. "'We would never think of disturbing you in possession of Cross Hall, so long as you fulfill the conditions of the will,' said the delegate from the blind asylum. "'Certainly you need never think of it, for you cannot,' said Macfarlane. "'But such a step as you contemplate is so flagrant a violation of the spirit and purport of Mr. Hogarth's will,' for right or wrong, he never meant Jane Melville to be mistress of Cross Hall, that we must claim our just rights. This confession, given with the hope of extorting money from the supposed heirs of Mr. Hogarth, is worthless, particularly considering the character of the person who makes it. I think you have no case whatever. Do not you agree with me? said the director of the deaf and dumb asylum, one who took the greatest possible interest in the working and the prosperity of that charity, and the funds of which were rather at a low ebb at this time. We cannot be supposed to be actuated by selfish motives. We are perfectly disinterested trustees for great public interests. But if property is left to these institutions, we would be wanting in our duty if we did not claim it. The other four directors took the same view of the case. 
none of them would agree to leave Francis unmolested if he took the step he meditated. "'But you observe,' said Francis, "'that this will has been the cause of great injustice. In the first place, Mr. Hogarth's two nieces had been brought up as his heirs, and they were left to struggle with difficulties and hardships, which were harder and more severe than any man has to go through, and for which the education their uncle had given them had not made them more fitted. In the second place, he left the property to me as supposing me to be his son. If this confession is true, I am not his son. But if I marry the woman who in that case is not my cousin, you will not allow me to keep the estate for her. So I am forced to—' "'Stop, Mr. Hogarth,' said Mr. Macfarlane eagerly. "'I am forced to make a deed of gift to each of you, as I am really in possession of the estate. I save you all the expense and trouble of litigation, and I have to begin the world again at far greater disadvantage than when I was taken from my bank-desk and my two hundred and fifty pounds a year two years ago. I have acquired expensive habits. I am two years older, and I shall have a wife and probably a family to maintain.' "'There is a great deal of truth in what you say,' said the director of the institution, for the sub-matronship of which Jane Melville had applied in vain. The other four were speechless with astonishment at the extraordinary proposition which Francis made to them. "'Litigation is long and expensive. I may say for my body of directors that we would be very happy to give some consideration for the very handsome, the very generous offer you make to us.' It is not right to marry without being a little beforehand with the world, and it would be very unfair to accept of all you gained by the will without making a little compensation for what you have lost. Any personal property, books and furniture, that you would like to keep, to the value of two hundred pounds or thereabouts, and a sum of four hundred pounds from each of us, I think would be fair, to give you a start in a new country. I believe Miss Melville is a very deserving lady. If it had not been for her youth we should have had her with us. I hope my friends here will agree with me that this is reasonable and just. "'You get the estate too cheaply,' said Mr. Macfarlane, with warmth. "'Think that Mr. Hogarth might have kept it forever if it had not been for this romantic crotchet. Think that he might marry Miss Melville, and, having possession, might defy you to oust him, and drag you through court after court, and run you up ten thousand pounds of cost, and, after all, the chancery courts would decide that he should keep it.' Public feeling is against these restrictions, for they lead to people living, par amours, if they are forbidden to marry, and Mr. Hogarth's position and character would be all in his favour. You get property worth fifty thousand pounds divided amongst you, and you offer my client a paltry two thousand pounds out of consideration for his generosity and forbearance. "'I am satisfied with it,' said Francis, "'and I think Jane will be the same.' "'It is too little,' said the director of the infirmary, who had never spoken before." We must make it five hundred pounds each, and we are very much obliged to Mr. Hogarth, and we should not limit him so much with regard to the personal property. Cross Hall Library was valued at more than one thousand pounds, and as they are all such reading folk, they might take two hundred pounds of books alone. Let us be liberal, and say seven hundred pounds for what he may like to take from Cross Hall. If I have any voice in the administration of the property I make over to you, I should like to have it applied specially to paying your officers better, particularly in those situations which are filled by women. I know you think it right to economize your funds, and I believe that all Scotch charities are much better managed, and much more honestly administered, than those on the other side of the Tweed. But I think you pay your surgeons and your matrons very shabbily. You say you get so many applications, that it shows you do not underpay them, but it would be much better to demand better qualifications, and pay them more highly." Out of sixty applications for a matronship worth thirty pounds a year, there is perhaps one or two only fit for the work, 
and if they are fit for it, they are well worth seventy pounds,' said Francis. "'We have raised that salary,' said the director of the institution. "'I am glad to hear it, very glad to hear it,' said Francis. "'We will take what you say into consideration,' said the director of the deaf and dumb institution, who was speculating on all that could be done with a sum amounting to more than nine thousand pounds. "'I object to specify sums in making the deed of gift, or I should make some special provision on that score.' but the value of money changes so much that what is a fair salary in one generation is not a fair one the next, and if salaries are fixed too high, they are apt to lead to favoritism and jobbing. I dare say it would be much better to trust to your own sense of honour on the matter. I think you may safely do so, Mr. Hogarth. With regard to the property, I suppose we should advertise it for sale, and then divide the proceeds. The payments to Mr. Hogarth must be made at once, however, as I suppose he is bound for Australia." said the director of the deaf and dumb asylum. "'Yes, in the first ship, which some friends of mine are going on,' said Francis. "'I am sure we wish you all prosperity and happiness in the marriage you contemplate, which has been so fortunate for those in whom we are interested,' said the last speaker, and the sentiment was echoed by all the others. "'Could you not buy Cross Hall?' said Francis to Miss Thompson on the day after this matter was settled. "'I should feel half my sorrow at parting with it removed, if I knew you could have it.' "'No, no, I am not going to buy a property that I cannot pay for. My father did something of the kind once, and all the time he was a lard we were poor. He sold the property at a great loss, and then things looked up again with him. I'd rather be a rich farmer than a poor proprietor. If I could see you in possession of Cross Hall, and Mr. Sinclair in my seat in Parliament, I should really have very little to give up. But it appears I cannot. I have accepted the stewardship of Her Majesty's Chiltern Hundreds to-day, and the boroughs will be declared vacant directly. But Mr. Sinclair cannot afford it, and he could not carry the election. His manner is not good enough. He does not conciliate people. If our scheme were carried, there would be no fear of Sinclair getting in, for he is a man really wanted. He could get a sufficient number of votes here to carry him half in, and the remainder of the quota would be attracted by his original genius and upright character, which he could show by his speeches and addresses, and we hope to make a seat in Parliament a much less costly affair. Fifty pounds or one hundred pounds should cover it all. But I fear the boroughs must fall back on either the Duke's nominee or the Earl's. Then are you more sorry to leave your people at Cross Hall, or your parliamentary duties? said Miss Thompson. The people at Cross Hall, I think, are really in a much better position than when I came, and perhaps it is well for them to be left to work out things for themselves, I have become much attached to them, but perhaps if I stayed there they would depend too much upon me. But in Parliament I have not yet broken ground in the work I had set myself to do, and I confess that I do regret it, both for my own sake, for the sake of my friends who depended on me, and for the sake of the dear old country itself. There may be more able men and more energetic men in Parliament, but I am sure there are none whose heart was more in the work than mine. But that was Jane's doing. I know if she had not urged these matters on me, I would very likely have spent my life in indolent enjoyment. Without the one drop of bitter in my cup, in the sufferings of Jane and Elsie, I could never have felt the responsibilities of wealth. I should have made a fine picture-gallery at Cross Hall, and probably acquired a name as a man of good taste, but the higher objects of life would have been lost sight of. The farewell address to his constituents was next written and read, with genuine sorrow on both sides. The farewells at Cross Hall were taken, and the establishment broke up. But Susan, the housemaid, when she heard that the master was going to Australia, with the purpose of marrying Miss Jane, begged to go with Peggy Walker's family, 
in hopes of being engaged in the service of the best master and the best mistress she ever saw, and her request was acceded to. Next came the journey to London, and the preparations for the voyage, and the hardest task of all, the parting from the friends and the objects he had so much at heart there. He had written a full explanation of his conduct to his coadjutors in London on his resigning his seat, and, though there was no reproach, there was a great deal of regret, for there was not another man, either able or willing, to take the part which Francis had purposed to hold, for any number of years, in which he might be in Parliament. End of Volume 3, Chapter 13